the book of Romans goes down in human history as perhaps one of the most powerful books in the New Testament. I say that mostly because there are so many great men who attribute their salvation directly to reading the book of Romans. I give you St. Augustine as an example, who was a believer with respect to his attitude to the scriptures and towards Christ, but who was in such bondage to sin that his life was one of shameful morals. And he himself knew that, but did not know how to set himself free. And one day heard, while he was in a garden someplace, heard a little girl singing a little ditty that said, take up and read, take up and read. And he sought out the scroll of the book of Romans and read the passage in Romans 13 that urges us not to live a life of indulgence and orgies and immorality and was immediately struck in his heart and from that point on was a different man. Of course, you've all heard the story of Martin Luther. Our pastor reflected on that story when he was going through his series of messages on the Reformation, how that Martin Luther quite literally in his life as a monk and in his attempts to be right before God, quite literally came to a place where he would openly say, I hate God. And he hated God because God had such a high standard and Luther had not yet learned that all that was intended to do was to show us how needy we were. Luther spent all kinds of time in his life in vain attempting to meet that standard that God had set up. And over and over again, all he faced was condemnation. And so he hated God until one day he was reading in Romans, reading a passage that we will read in a moment or two, where Paul quotes from the Old Testament the righteous man shall live by faith. And it hit him. I don't have to do anything. I just have to trust God. And, of course, we have the Reformation down on the pages of history to know where that led. Those are just two stories that we could tell of how many people's lives have been utterly transformed by reading the book of Romans. Some call it the first of the Christian systematic theologies. That's a pretty good description, I think. But obviously, I'm not going to do an exposition of the 16 chapters of Romans. Oh, I'm surprised you didn't start applauding. I think. <laughs> but I want to dip in at the beginning of the book of Romans because there is where Paul tells us what it is he's going to write about. Everything else that follows that is about what he talks about here. So let me read the early verses that we want to look at this morning. Romans chapter 1, commencing at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, 
Now we could stop right there and let me say to you that there is the statement that tells us what the book of Romans is about. Paul says, I'm set apart as an apostle for the gospel of God and you can assume that from that point on that's what he's going to talk about. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Christ. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I submit to you that Paul says five things about the gospel in this passage of Scripture. If we get those five things down, I think we will understand what it is Paul expects us to grasp throughout the book. Five things about the gospel. First of all, he talks about the promise of the gospel. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, quite obviously, when Paul wrote those words, the Scriptures he was talking about were the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying is, this gospel I want to write to you about has already been revealed and spoken of in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, admittedly, it's not there in the same kind of detail that we can get it in the New Testament. But you go through the Old Testament under the leadership and tutelage of the Holy Spirit, and you will see hints and references and suggestions of what we call the New Testament gospel all through. If you're thinking about the implications of what's being said there. I have a book in my library, one of a set of five volumes. I only have two of those volumes. There are two reasons why I only have two of those volumes. Those two were gifts. I couldn't afford the other three. And plus, it'll take me forever to get through them anyway, so it wouldn't have been good to have the other three. But anyway, the whole thrust of this whole five-volume set, the whole reason why it's being written by Stephen Lawson is to show just what I'm talking about, how that in every one of the passages of the Old Testament, the gospel is there in seed form. And we just need to have our eyes open to see it. So Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, as to this salvation, this is the great passage in Peter's where he elucidated in what I think is one of the most moving passages of all the New Testament about our salvation. And he follows that by saying, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, 
seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets were not serving themselves, they were serving us. They were telling us what we could expect. It was the gospel. Someone has said, I have to take their word for it, I haven't counted them, but someone has said that there are 332 Old Testament prophecies specifically about Christ, most of them fulfilled in his first coming. The Old Testament is about the gospel, and it's not necessary for us to be confused ever, wherever we are, about the gospel. Read through the Old Testament and you'll see constantly the reference that God is in control and God is doing what God wants to do. God is asserting his holiness and providing for his people who are unholy. All of that is going on all through the Old Testament. And what do you find when you get to the New Testament? God is still doing that and he's done it once and for all in Christ. That's the gospel. So the promise of the gospel has been in our hands from the time the Old Testament was canonized. Second thing that Paul says about the gospel, second important thing he points out, is the person of the gospel. Read in context. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Okay, so the gospel is about God's Son. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. Now, what does he say about him here? Concerning his Son, who, one, was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Stop there for a minute and think theologically with me. He was born of a descendant of David. What are we talking about here theologically? The incarnation. He's starting off right away saying God was incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who witness and even some of you who don't and get into discussions with people and this question is raised, somebody's going to raise it. Well, the Bible doesn't say Christ is God. Christ didn't claim to be God. Well, number one, I think he did, and I think it can be proven that he did. But number two, whether he did or not is irrelevant since the Bible says God's Son was incarnated in human flesh. And who was that? Jesus. So God said he's God. I kind of think I can trust God's word on that, don't you? So he speaks about the incarnation of God's Son. God came into the world in the form 
of a human being. So Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that he, Jesus, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Make no mistake about it, God in the person of Christ was God in human flesh walking on the face of this earth. God became man. Now, I know how the lost world thinks, and I know why they think that. That's fantastic. That sounds more like legends and myths and fairy tales. That's not the kind of thing that happens every day. No, it doesn't. It happened once, and it'll probably never happen again. But it did happen. God did walk on the face of this planet as a man. The apostles interacted with God when they talked with Jesus. It was God who touched the eyes of blind people and caused them to see. It was God who put his fingers in the ear of deaf people and caused them to hear. It was God who stood by open graves and called the dead back to life. It was God. Human history says it was Jesus, and that's true. But that was God. So the gospel talks about the incarnation of God. God in human flesh. But it goes on. He was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was, by the way, here we have it again, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now we need to be careful how we read that phrase. He was declared the Son of God, not made to be the Son of God, did not become the Son of God. He was already the Son of God, and the resurrection just made that clear. He was declared to be the Son of God. Notice, declared to be the Son of God with power. You know, I used to read that verse and say to myself, what was the intent of that? Why isn't it enough just to say he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead? Well, the reason why, I think, is because all the time that Jesus walked around on this earth, he was not the symbol of power. Oh, he did powerful things, but there were miracle workers besides Jesus in his day. But he didn't have a place that belonged to him. Bible says the Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head. When they sought to forcibly make him king, he had to hide from the mob. When they decided finally that they'd had enough and they were going to arrest him, he had no armies, nobody to come to his help. He was there helpless and they arrested him and they dragged him off and they treated him unjustly and cruelly, 
and shamefully by anybody's standards. And he was not exactly displaying a lot of power. And it's almost like he went to the cross and died and they buried him. And it was almost like God said, I've had enough. And he called him back out of the grave declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. So if you ever talk to somebody who doubts whether Jesus really is God, say, well, how do you account for the empty grave? How do you account for that? God's already accounted for it. God declared his son to be God and proved it by the resurrection. Left nothing to chance. I want you to consider how certain and secure that is. Look at 1 Corinthians. You would expect me to go to 1 Corinthians 15, would you not? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. This gospel we're talking about is salvation. By which also you are saved. Lost my place here. If you hold the word, hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, here it is. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Do you understand what Paul was doing there? He was saying, look, here's a whole list of people who saw him after he rose from the dead. If you don't believe me, go look them up and talk to them. See, Paul wasn't afraid of witnesses. He knew that they would simply confirm what he was just saying. How important is it for us to get this down? How important is it for us to anchor our hope and our theology and, and our salvation to this concept? How important is it? Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, see, if our hope doesn't go beyond this, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 22, for as in Adam, all die. That's all of us. We come unto this world dead, really, because of our association with Adam. As in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. Well, Paul couldn't say that if Christ hadn't raised from the dead. If somebody could say, wait a minute, Paul, come with me. I want you to go to the graveyard with me. Roll that stone back and look in there. There's his body. 
if they could have done that, all of this would be meaningless. But they couldn't do that. God had already demonstrated that he and his son had the last word on life and death. So there's the resurrection. And he draws some conclusions from that. Notice how he goes on. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Now here's what I want you to see. He puts this name here. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's not only an identification of who he is talking about. It is a statement of theology. Break it down. He is Jesus. Do you remember what the angel said to Mary when he announced the impending birth? You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He is Jesus, our Savior, and we can be sure about that because God raised him from the dead. He is Jesus Christ. Now, Christ really is just a title. But by the time Paul wrote, the early Christians were so used to that title that it had become a proper noun to them. So it wasn't uncommon for Christians to refer to him as Christ. And that's appropriate. That's who he is. Who is Christ? Christ is the anointed one. Who is anointed? The priest. So he is Christ, our anointed priest. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said on that issue? Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's why it's important to know about the incarnation. He was a real man. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the resurrection declares him to be Jesus, the Savior, Christ, the high priest. Then he goes on to say, it is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is Lord. He is our God and sovereign ruler. Paul wrote later on in the book of Romans in chapter 14, saying about Christ that for this cause Christ rose again that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. So you can't make a big deal out of Easter Sunday and then go home and treat Christ as though he's just around to dispense goodies. No, no. 
The very fact that you celebrate resurrection indicates Christ is Lord. Lord of my time, he's Lord of my energy, he's Lord of my material things. He's Lord. Is he? If you look in your life closely, is he Lord? Because what he did indicates that he is. What's the third thing Paul observes about the gospel? Verse 5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. That's the key. Paul is in effect saying, I'm preaching this gospel, I'm presenting it to you because I want the name of God to be exalted. That's the purpose of the gospel. If you want another point there. The purpose of the gospel is the exaltation of God's name. And how's he going to do that? To bring about the obedience of faith. It's interesting to me that he moves right away from Jesus Christ, Lord, to talk about the necessity of the obedience of faith. Why is that so important? Well, let me give you three things quickly. Because obedient faith demonstrates love for Christ. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And in verse 21 of John 14, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Obedient faith demonstrates love for Christ. It's a contradiction to say on the one hand, I love Christ, and on the other hand, disobey him. It doesn't work. Obedient faith demonstrates Genuine conversion. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Obedient faith is what pleases God. Something King Saul needed to learn. You remember he was told to wait till Samuel came before they did any sacrificing. Not only so, but he was supposed to destroy all the livestock and the king and the people and everything else that he had just conquered, but he didn't do any of that. And he went ahead and made a sacrifice, and when Samuel came, wanted to know what in the world's going on, what are you doing? Saul made his excuses. Well, I, uh, you, you weren't here, and I needed to make sacrifices and honor God. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Don't pat yourself on the back if you're making great sacrifices for the kingdom if there's a corner of your life where you're hedging a little bit and elbowing God out because you don't want to do what he wants you to do. 
That doesn't work. God wants obedience. And why is that? Because when we choose to obey, when we choose to take all the strings off and we obey God wholeheartedly, what that says is we really do trust Him. You know why any of us ever disobey God? Because we're not quite sure that the outcome is going to be good. We think maybe we can orchestrate a better outcome. So we hedge a little bit and we disobey. The outcome will never be as good if you obey God. So the purpose of the gospel is that God's name be exalted and he's best exalted by our obedience. Fourth thing Paul observes about the gospel here is the power of the gospel. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Two things here, the power of the gospel for salvation. The gospel is enough for people to be saved. You try to mix anything else in there, and the world of evangelicalism is full of all kinds of stuff that is supposed to be helpful. The gospel is all we need. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And by that message we are saved. Don't need anything else. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read a moment or two ago. This is the gospel I preach to you, Paul said, and this is the gospel by which you are saved. That message has power in itself to touch a sinner's heart and to cause them to repent and to call them to Christ where their lives are transformed and they are set free of the sin they could never say no to on their own. And they begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus and themselves become lights. The gospel has the power to do that. Why would we mess around with anything else? The gospel is all we need. But in talking about the power, he goes on to talk about faith. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Faith is the vehicle, if you will, the instrument, the way that we lay hold upon this gospel. There's power in believing God's word. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith. Just taking God at his word. Later on in this same epistle in chapter 5, Paul will say in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Having been justified, having been declared righteous before God. And God is the one who makes that declaration. And that becomes ours by faith. So Paul, talking about 
why everything that he once counted as of value and import in his walk with God, his religious background, his law-keeping, all the rest of it, writes it all off as rubbish and says in Philippians chapter 3, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's why we should all be able to say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is by the power of that gospel that I stand righteous before God. That was the power of the gospel. He makes one other thing. He talks about the point of the gospel. What is the point of it all? Where is this all supposed to be pointing us? Here's why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's the point of the gospel. The righteousness of God. You know, it, it's wonderful that we can say of ourselves that when the end comes for us, we know for certain we're not going to hell. That's wonderful. But you know what? That's not the point. That is not the point. God was not interested in providing us a fire escape from hell. What God was interested in is taking a bunch of lost sinners who had nothing going for them and recreating his righteousness and applying it to them. What's the point? The point is I'm not sinful anymore, I'm righteous. And some of you are saying, eh, well, I, <laughs> if you had to live with me for a whole day, you'd know better. Uh, ah, yeah, right. But listen, we're talking about the record book that's in heaven before a righteous God. And when my Savior intercedes for me, and he does every day, the Bible tells me. When my Savior intercedes for me, more often than not, he's praying for me at a time when I'm messing up. And he's saying, well, that is true, Father. That is what he is doing. But remember, he's wearing my robe of righteousness. And that's always the case. The righteousness of God on my account, on your account. When the record books are opened in heaven and your name and my name is looked up, alongside of it will be the entry, the righteousness of Christ. Because that's why Christ came, of 
according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he said, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And so every Lord's Day, we come here to this time in our worship where we come to the table of the Lord and remember that. We take the elements of communion, the bread and the cup, and they speak to us of that moment in history where sin was nailed to the cross and the righteousness of God became ours. That's what we celebrate. So we all are going to join the table of the Lord and celebrate that. 